Today on Reparations in Action. This war of independence against Britain by U.S. slaveholders. They did not want Britain to be able to have the power to um, say whether they would have control over African human beings or not. You're listening to Reparations in Action. You're listening to the Reparations in Action podcast and FM radio show, White Lies Shattered series. My name is Jamie Simpson. Reparations in Action is a program of white solidarity with black power. Currently, we are in a series exposing the insidious lies we tell ourselves as white or European people about the nature and origin of America and the current social system. We believe reparations to African people is the key question of our times and is one that demands action on the part of European or white people. As always, we'd like to salute Black Power 96, where this show is aired and recorded for our podcast weekly. Today, we are taking on the white lie that the American Revolution was fought against tyranny. With us today is Penny Hess, chair of the African People's Solidarity Committee, and author of the book Overturning the Culture of Violence. Welcome back, and Uhuru Penny. Uhuru, Jamie. I'm so excited to be here today. I'm glad to be back on Reparations in Action. I want to welcome everybody who's listening, and I am excited to take on this important white lie that, quote, the American Revolution was fought against British tyranny and taxation without representation. And before we start, I want to salute Chairman Omalia Shetela, Deputy Chair Onisene Shetela, the African People's Socialist Party that formed the African People's Solidarity Committee that I have the honor of being the chair of, as part of their strategy to liberate Africa and African people by sending white people behind enemy lines into the white community to build a movement of solidarity and reparations to African people. <clears throat> My ability to to sum up these questions comes from the leadership of Chairman O'Malley Chatella and from the insight, because certainly I couldn't come to some of these conclusions that, that we are understanding here on this show. But it's very exciting because in this series, we are biased on the side of the African working class, on the side of the oppressed and the colonized. And we recognize the two sides to every question and that are the point of view of the oppressor and the point of view of the oppressed. And we aren't here just to give you some interesting history, but to explain the world so that we can be part of changing it. Everything that you're hearing about should want you to take up the struggle and join in the movement for reparations to African people. So we use African internationalism, a theory of practice, that was created by Chairman Omali Chatella and the African People's Socialist Party to analyze the world as it really is and to inspire us to get out there and actually be part of changing it. So today we're going to show <clears throat> that the American Revolution was not fought against tyranny or tax or the Tea Party or, or any of those things, but it was there to preserve the system of enslavement of African people and to make sure that the emerging ruling class of what were then colonies of Britain would maintain control over the trade of African people and the whole system of chattel slavery. So 
So let's start by looking at the world in the 1700s. And, you know, by the mid-1700s, we, you know, we see what is characterized as the Industrial Revolution based on what they call the, quote, triangular trade. About 1750 is what is considered the Industrial Revolution. And that is totally tied to the assault on Africa, the kidnapping of African human beings, the theft of raw materials and minerals stolen from Africa. And, and I'm talking about Europeans leaving Europe, starting with Portugal, later Spain, and, and ultimately the majority of the major European countries and powers going to Africa to in this open assault on the continent of Africa and began kidnapping and trafficking African human beings, forcing them to the Caribbean, to the U.S., to Brazil, um, forcing them to labor until their deaths, often worked to deaths in seven years or less on plantations um, that produced cotton, sugar, indigo, tobacco. And these products were then transported to Britain, and Europe and other parts of Europe for processing and manufacturing. This created factories, shipbuilding, um, you know, just cotton milling and other kinds of, of factories that processed these products that were being um, forcibly produced by enslaved African people. And it brought into Europe huge commodities that were worth huge amounts of resources that were immediately taken up all the things that you know that we know today tea coffee opium you know and the ability to to get cotton clothes and um dyes and you know and other and tobacco and other kinds of things and, and it was also tied to land theft from the indigenous people in the americas tied to genocide genocide open genocide of the indigenous people, a whole subject that we are going to be talking about on this series in, in upcoming weeks. This is how capitalism was born. That's what, what Chairman O'Malley Chatella tells us. It was the birth of the stock market, of industrialization, of banking, insurance, um, factories, and the whole urban set, setting. And the assault on Africa was the cornerstone that led to the colonial domination and plunder of the majority of the world, of the entire planet by Europeans and for the benefit of Europeans. So this created the industrial revolution. This forced white serfs and peasants off the land because now they were needed to build ships. They were needed in the industrial centers. Um, they were needed in the factories. They were needed in the cities to, to do that work. So when we look at the United States, 30% of white people in the South owned African people. So this whole concept that there were only a few white people that owned African people is not true. That in itself is a lie. And that, um, that yes, it's true that there were the large plantations where hundreds of African people were owned but many white farmers owned one or two African human beings. So, you know, the whole question of the enslavement of white people, of African people by white people is 
um, it is very deep into the DNA of the United States. And for white farmers or poor white people, investment into um, purchasing an African human being was an investment that they needed for, um, for their future, for their lives, for their, their whole economic infrastructure. And, um, and this, you know, this was the brutal and, and bitter reality of this country. So in the North, New York, Boston, and other places were also completely tied to the enslavement of African people. It is completely false to, to say that only the South was dependent on the enslavement of African people. There's a tremendous book that I recommend for, um, for everybody to read, and it's called How the North Promoted, Prolonged, and Profited from Slavery. Um, complicity, complicity, how the North promoted, prolonged, and profited from slavery by Anne Farrow, Farrow, Joel Lang, and Jennifer Frank of the Hartford Current. And it came out, you know, maybe, oh, 10, 15 years ago, but it really has a lot of, of really important information in it. And, you know, it's saying, it's laying out how the cities of New York and Boston and other places were completely tied to the products and commodities produced by enslaved African people. Um, and that it, um, you know, it, it points out that New York City, the enslavement of African people was legal. It did happen. There were, there were thousands of enslaved African people in New York and in New York City. And as we have talked about before, there's something like 16,000 African bodies laying underground um, underneath the buildings of Wall Street. So that part of, of New York is where the stock market started based on the slave ships coming in and bringing African human beings who were the stock. And this is, you know, just uh, to me, that is a reality that, that does tell the story um, in, of the United States and of capitalism itself, of this immense weight of the Wall Street skyscrapers resting on a literal foundation on the bodies of African human beings. And the book Complicity also points out how Wall Street was so dependent on cotton and other commodities coming from the southern plantations as well as dependent on the voyages which were often um, launched from um, from the northern states, from Boston, etc., um, to Africa, that that stole and kidnapped African human beings. That New York wanted to side with the Confederacy. So you know that is a, a really you know clear story that you can read about in this book, Complicity. So the fact is that. African human beings were the U.S.'s largest single asset class. They were the leverage for mortgages, loans. They were, they were there for investments. They were used for investments. And that's how the major banks actually owned African people. They were collateral and like your house and your mortgage. If you didn't pay your monthly installments, they could take your collateral away from you. And they did do that. And that's how 
um, these big banks and and investment firms and uh, you know and mortgage companies and insurance companies had you know ended up owning African human beings. So the resistance of African people also in New York is is very is very very profound. And in 1712 and 1741 were major insurrections of African people and the terror that was rained down against them, uh, against this powerful resistance are well known. And that is something also that, you know, we can talk about in another, in another episode, because just the resistance of African people is, is incredible throughout the US and throughout the Caribbean and everywhere that African people have been oppressed and colonized. Um, so we have to understand too that the enslavement of African people was primitive accumulation. It created wealth for all colonies on stolen indigenous land and for capitalism overall. And the enslavement of African people was the key issue, not only for the civil war in the US, but for what is called the American Revolution. In 1772, there was a case in London called the Somerset Case that outlawed the enslavement of African people in Britain, but not in the colonies. Somerset was the name of an African man who brought a lawsuit against, um, against his owner, quote unquote, when his owner tried to, to take him to Jamaica to sell him. And, you know, you just think how, you know, just intense this history is. And there's a book called The Slave Nation, which tells about this case and tells about the impact that it had. But the Somerset decision, which, again, outlawed enslavement in Britain, not in the colonies, but in Britain itself um, in 1772, this was four years before the U.S. war for independence from, from that. And that, um, that, you know, again, the courts ruled in favor of Somerset. He not only won his case, but, you know, would force others in Britain to, to be free as well. So, of course, you know, this is four years before what became the revolutionary movement. And this this understand or the you know news of the Somerset case just like rippled through the U.S. newspapers, both north and south, and created a lot of reaction, not only in the south but throughout you know throughout the U.S. And you know I just also want so this is this is by the way this is a really important impetus for the um, hastening of the this war of independence against Britain by US slaveholders they did not want Britain to be able to have the power to um, say whether they would have control over African human beings or not so you know I wanted to look at in this whole discussion Thomas Jefferson who wrote the words into the U.S. Declaration of Independence. His statement was, all men are created equal. And Thomas Jefferson is put forward by liberals as this, uh, this great kind of philosopher of democracy and who, you know, just of liberalism and, 
you know, just brilliant. And he's still put forward today, even though it's, you know, it, it's been very much exposed that Thomas Jefferson owned over 600 people during his lifetime. And he acquired approximately 175 enslaved people through inheritance, uh, about 40 from the estate of his father and 135 from his father-in-law in 1774. So, you know, I just, I, I want to say that Thomas Jefferson is, is this kind of, of liberal, you know, that, that we still see today. I mean, he had huge natural gardens of, um, grew his own food and, and had vegetables that he brought back from France and from Asia and other, other places. He had all kinds of, of, you know, beautiful vegetables and fruits growing on his land. And it, it was, you know, he punished any African viciously and beat them if they, if he accused them of basically reparating any of the vegetables that, um, that he had growing there. So, you know, he, he had big dinners and, um, you know, just traveled the world, drank wine, imported wine from France. He was very much, um, a slave master of this period. And he, um, and, and I do want to say that, you know, the story, the understanding of um, his raping of his enslaved African woman, Sally Hemings, is um, something that has been proven by the DNA of the, um, of the progeny of, of Sally Hemings, who are alive today, who have had DNA tests to prove that, yes, this really happened because, you know, the, the U.S. bourgeois history always tries to wipe that out. And just recently, um, there's been articles in, in papers saying that um, archaeologists just uncovered this tiny bedroom at Monticello, Jefferson's planta uh, plantation in Virginia, um, that was right next to to um, to Thomas Jefferson's huge bedroom. That was a little tiny room, no windows, but it had a doorway to his bedroom, and that's where she had to live with all of his children. That you know that she she mothered, and so you know this is this is there. We see how brutal that he was a pedophile. She was thirteen years old when he began raping her, and uh, you know carrying out this um, you know this, this colonial terror against her that went throughout her entire life, and then kept her in this little dungeon where she had her babies. You know, just just a horrible story. But there's a really, really deep article that was published in Smithsonian Magazine in 2012, and it's called "The Dark Side of Thomas Jefferson." And I just really want to talk about that because Thomas Jefferson is a quote founding father. Again, he's the one that wrote "All Men Are Created Equal," which had in it an implication that enslaved. African people were going to be freed, that, you know, that, that the U.S. was, or, or 
yeah, that this new country now freed and independent from British colonialism was going to free African people. It hinted at that. But this talks about the true side of, of Thomas Jefferson. I just want to read a little bit from this article. Again, it was in Smithsonian Magazine in 2012. And it's saying that the critical turning point in Jefferson's thinking may well come in 1792. And this is where, you know, he really becomes clear. It's saying that he was a, um, you know, that just the in, immense financial benefits that he and profits that he was gaining from enslaved African people from his 600 African human beings that he owned. And so it's saying as, as Jefferson was counting up the agricultural profits and losses of his plantation in a letter to President Washington that year, it occurred to him that there was a phenomenon he had perceived at Monticello, but never actually measured. He proceeded to calculate it in a barely legible scribbled note in the middle of a page enclosed in brackets. What Jefferson set out clearly for the first time was that he was making a, per, a 4% profit every year on the birth of black children. The enslaved were yielding him a bonanza, a perpetual human dividend at compound interest. Jefferson wrote, I allow nothing for losses by death, but on the contrary, shall presently take credit 4% per annum for their increases and, and above keeping up their own numbers. His plantation was producing inexhaustible human assets. The percentage was predictable. In another communication from the early 1790s, Jefferson takes the 4% formula further and quite bluntly advances the notion that slavery presented an investment strategy for the future he writes that an acquaintance who had suffered financial reverses should have been invested in Negroes, quote unquote. He advises that if uh, the friend's family had any cash left, every farthing of it should be laid out in land and African human beings, which besides a, pr a present support, bring a silent profit of from 5 to 10% in this country by the increase in their value. The irony is that Jefferson sent his 4% formula to George Washington, who freed his slaves, precisely because slavery made human beings um, into money, like cattle in the market. And this disgusted him. I don't, I don't believe that. It disgusted George Washington, by the way. But I think that there were forces that, um, that forced George Washington to have, to have to do that. But Jefferson never did that. And that... Um, it also talks about um, how, how it's recently come to light, how disturbing how Monticello's young black boys, the small ones, age 10, 11, and 12, which he forced to work in his nail factory, were whipped to get them to work in Jefferson's nail factory. Um, whose profits paid the mansion's grocery bills. This passage about children being lashed had been suppressed, deliberately de deleted from the published record in the 1953 edition of Jefferson's farm book, 
containing 500 pages of planting, plantation papers. That edition of the farm book still serves as a standard reference to research into the way Monticello works. Um, so, you know, he's saying that by 1789, Jefferson planned to shift away from growing tobacco at Monticello, whose, whose cultivation he described as a culture of infinite wretchedness. Tobacco wore out the soil so fast that new acreage constantly had to be cleared, engrossing so much land that food cannot be raised to feed the workers and requiring the farmer to purchase rations for the, the enslaved Africans. In a strangely modern twist, Jefferson had taken note of the measurable climate change in the region. The Chesapeake region was unmistakably cooling and becoming inhospitable to heat-loving tobacco that would soon, he thought, become the staple of South Carolina and Georgia. So he visited farms and inspected equipment and considered a new crop, wheat, and the exciting prospect that it opened to him. And so, you know, he began... Um, cultivating wheat and, um, you know, using this, this factory where he forced children to make nails, these little children. And he did it in such a brutal way and forced a competition between the children that had them, you know, just as it's just what the colonizer does to colonize people. He forced them to be, attacking each other instead of their oppressor and it you know it's a long story but I really would urge people to read it in this article that when you know he says that in, in 1794 I now employ a dozen little boys from 10 to 16 years of age overlooking all the details of their business myself he said he spent half the day counting and measuring nails in the morning, he weighed and distributed nail rod to each nailer. At the end of the day, he weighed the finished product and noticed how much rod had been wasted. The nailery particularly suited me, he wrote, because it would employ a parcel of boys who would otherwise be idle. Equally important, it served as a training and testing ground. All the nail boys, quote unquote, got extra food. Those who did well received a new suit of clothes. And they, and they could also expect to graduate, as it were, to training as artisans rather than going in the ground as common field slaves. I mean, it was just hideous. Some nail boys rose in the plantation hierarchy to become house servants, blacksmiths, carpenters, or coopers. You know, it talks about that, but how they were pitted to each other. And, um, you know, and then some received twice the food of others or no wages, and, and they received no wages at all. Jefferson paid white boys, overseers' sons, 50 cents a day for cutting wood, but he paid these African children forced to, in this hideous nail factory, to um, work for nothing, of course. They were enslaved. They were his property. So he, exuberant over the success of his nail factory, Jefferson wrote, my new trade of nail making is to me in this country what an additional title of nobility or the ensigns of a new order are in Europe. The profit was substantial. Just months after the factory began operation, he wrote that a nailery, which I have established with my own, quote, Negro voice, now provides completely for the maintenance of my family. Two months of labor 
by the Nail Boys paid the entire annual grocery boy for Jefferson's family. He wrote to Richmond merchants, my groceries come to between four and $500 a year, taken and paid for quarterly. The best resource of quarterly payment is my power, in my power is nails, of which I make enough every fortnight to pay a quarter's bill. And so, you know, this is talking about his, he wrote, you know, all men are created equal. He was a vicious, vicious um, slave master, an example of, um, you know, just the colonizer, the colonizer nation and, and just this hideous world that, that we live in under U.S. imperialism and capitalism that is based on the, um, just this pedestal on the backs of African human beings and what that has meant. And so I, you know, I just want to read and sum up briefly what Chairman O'Malley Shatella has written so that we can, you know, be very clear that this is what capitalism is. This is what the United States is. There were never any ideals of, um, you know, of justice and equality for human beings that, that were at the basis of anything the U.S. has ever done. It has been simply and totally about just the assault on African human beings that we see the continuation of today. It is on the colonial domination of the entire African nation around the world and inside this country and it is built on the genocide of the indigenous people and their colonization inside their own lands, their own stolen lands today. So this is the nature, the DNA of the United States, everything about it. It can't be reformed. It's built that way. And that it is built on capitalism and capitalism is built on the assault and colonization of African people and oppressed people around the world. And Chairman O'Malley Shatella writes in this incredible book, Vanguard, The Advanced Detachment of the African Revolution, slavery, genocide, and colonialism are the stuff of which capitalism was born. African enslavement was the first capital in the development of capitalism. The prevailing legal system, culture, religion, and general philosophical outlook or worldview constitute the superstructure of capitalism thus conceived. The superstructure is a natural product and reflection of this economic base of colonial slavery. So everything that we're talking about that exists in the U.S., the school systems, the legal system, the the state itself, the, the ability of white people to have mortgages and buy houses, which out in California costs almost a million dollars for a little house. And, you know, just these conditions that we take for granted come at the expense of African people in such a brutal and ongoing way that was there from the very, very beginnings. There are no benign beginnings of the system of capitalism or of the U.S. itself. And the chairman continues, there is therefore 
no European reality separate from that of Africa and the rest of the world. The entire world is now locked into a single dialectical process, a unity of opposites whereupon the gruesome extraction of life and resources from Africa and the rest of the world is conditioned for the life and development of what we now know as Europe, white people, and the capitalist system to which we have been forcibly affixed. The legal system, culture, white sense of sameness, and political institutions are reflections of this parasitic economic base. Every white aspiration and dream, every expectation for happiness and a good life from a successful marriage to a secure future for their children requires drone strikes in Pakistan, police murders and mass imprisonment in the African colonies and barrios of the U.S., and starvation and forced displacement of the oppressed throughout the world. Chairman O'Malley should tell us. So all of this is to say that there is a superstructure of our lives that even though we didn't do it, we live as colonizers in the social wealth opportunities and on this foundation that created the lives we live, which was the lives of African human beings for hundreds of years. And this is why reparations is the key issue. It was then, it is now. Colonialism is the key contradiction in this entire system and why we have to answer the call of the African revolution to win others, to take the stand of reparations. So I'm just going to stop there, Jamie. And, um, you know, we can sum it up. But, yeah, this lie was shattered. Uhuru, Penny. Wow. Yeah, this is such an important topic. I, I really appreciate your overview. I think that of the foundational myths that we need to shatter, that we tell ourselves as white people, the lie that the American Revolution was a fight for liberty against tyranny is one of the most profound. And I think it's it's really appropriate that you exposed Thomas Jefferson for the, the foul rapist and slave owner and uh, genocidal maniac that he was. And the, the fact that there were so many uprisings of African people against slavery at every stage, mm-hmm. and that includes during the American Revolution. In fact, the, the British put out an appeal to any enslaved Africans who wanted to fight for them, that they would win their freedom if they fought uh, for the British crown. And of course, they didn't make good on that offer. But Help. it just it goes to show how hollow this cry of liberty on the part of people like Thomas Jefferson, Ben Franklin, and, and the rest of them really was when it came from African people. And you can see that again in the way that the United States under Jefferson's presidency responded to the Haitian Revolution, right? Uh, who, if for a moment, thought that maybe they could find an ally in the U.S. because they fought an alleged revolution. And it, it really begs the question, was the American Revolution even a revolution? Can you have a revolution led by slave owners and colonists? Yeah, it was a fight over the spoils, you know, the colonial plunder and colonial domination and enslavement. That's all it was. It was a fight over who was going to control that. Exactly. And even the the declaration itself, the declaration, the so-called Declaration of Independence, there's an original uh, version of that 
that includes this pained section by Thomas Jefferson uh, trying to explain that slavery is, in fact, the fault of uh, King George, that this is something that was foisted on the colonists. And, uh, and, then, and then turns around and lists as one of their complaints the fact that the British were encouraging uh, the African slaves to fight for their freedom and to kill the slave master, that this is yet one, of, one more of the tyrannies that they're fighting against. So the, the, the hypocrisy just runs really, really deep. And we can continue to see it, I think, re, you know, re- reflected in the, the so-called values of American democracy today, like the, the notion that the U.S. fights for democracy all around the world, which I know is, is a lie that we want to take on for a future episode. But it's, it's really important just to, to right. see this for the, the disease-ridden, tyrannical thing that it's always been. As you said, it's, it's fighting over the spoils. Uh, it's, it's saying, look, we're the ones who stole the land from the indigenous. We, white colonists, were the ones who did the, the whipping and the enslaving. So we want all of the profits. Exactly. And that's, you know, they want total control over it. And that is in the nature and the, the total... Um, you know, as we say, the total DNA of the United States. That's what it is. It's not an aberration. It's essential to what the United States is in every possible way. And as we know, and and the U.S. has been nothing but a colonizer nation internally, or what is now internally, because all of this land, the whole process that then the U.S. has gone through to steal more and more and more land and to, to deepen and, and enlist the general white population and the genocide against the indigenous people. And at the same time, you know, we see that, that the U.S. is the dominant imperial power in the entire world today. And, you know, overtly and covertly has its hands in every single thing that's happening throughout the world that is creating economically, politically, militarily um, suffering for oppressed peoples around the world. This is what the U.S. represents. There is no, um, again, no reform. There's nothing that we can do to make that better. It's got to go. Yeah. And, and to the extent that we want to delude ourselves and say, well, yeah, there's there are some problems with U.S. democracy, but still, isn't it democracy? Isn't it the best government that we have that's representative in the world, uh, then we're not going to be able to remedy any of these contradictions and unite with actual freedom in the world, which is represented by African people fighting for their freedom, by indigenous people fighting for their freedom. And it just, it becomes really cynical, this this notion of, of American democracy. African people have never experienced democracy in this hemisphere. And certainly neither have indigenous people. And, you know, when you're, when you're talking about the, the question of the indigenous, I think it's, it's interesting. Um, I believe it was, it was in the book Lies My Teacher Told Me, um, and I'm forgetting the name of the author right now. Maybe you could help me with that, Penny. But the, one of the points that, that he makes in that book is that the, the number of wars fought against the indigenous far outstrips any fighting against British imperialism by the U.S. colonists. I mean, that was the main struggle. The, the manifest destiny question, the, the slaughter yeah, that, of the indigenous people. Yes. And, you know, St. Louis, where I am, is was the launching 
ground for that, the staging ground for all of what was called the Indian Wars, which were wars of genocide against the indigenous people. And that's a whole, the incredible book called um, Broken, The Broken Heart of America, the history of St. Louis is um, just wow. I mean, that, that book is mind, mind blowing. And in terms of, you know, every vicious policy against African and indigenous people was basically piloted here in St. Louis over, you know, the last two or three centuries. So yeah, this is, there is no democracy for African people. There is whatever the colonial government will do to them. And that, you know, when, when we look at the, the George Floyd trial, which is going, you know, now the jury is deliberating and we're going to, we're waiting to see the outcome of that. But either way, we know it's a colonial decision and it's not a decision made by the African population of this country. They, you know, it is something that colonialism decides at their expense to whatever is the advantage for the colonial state at any given time. And that there is no way that, you know, defunding a police or, um, or anything, any other reform in such a way is going to change anything. The only thing that is changing things is African people taking power over their lives and such programs as black community controlled police where African people will determine what the police will be. And, when, you know, when we look at, again, we look at the history of this country, we look at the Thomas Jeffersons and the nail factories and all the children who suffered and, you know, just the, the depth of the terror that has been, um, you know, just even into uh, the psyche of African human beings and yet the resistance and fight that has always been there to be free and liberated is, you know, it's, just, it's an unbroken line of struggle. And, this is why we have to know this history. We have to know that this is how it started. There is this liberal lie that there was, you know, somehow it was better. We should go back to how it used to be because it was better in the old days. <laughs> yeah, well, ask the indigenous people that. Ask the millions of slaughtered African people that. No, that is a complete lie. You know, and it's the resistance of African people who has even brought these questions out and forced them onto the agenda, you know, in, in today's world. Yeah, and, and that's that's borne out by the number of, of rebellions that we see in uh, j- just in, in the founding years of the U.S. colonies. You, you see the Stono Rebellion mm-hmm. in 1739. You, you mentioned yeah. the New York Rebellion of 1741. There was Gabriel's Conspiracy mm-hmm. in 1800. And th- that's an African who was born prophetically in 1776 mm-hmm. and r- actually believed that somehow white workers were, were going to eventually rally t- to African people. And of course, he, w- he was executed with all all the, the courageous Africans who rose up along with him. You've got the, the German coast uprising of 1811. And if I'm not mistaken, even the, the war of 1812 and, and the, uh, the burning of, of the U.S. Capitol, there was a, a major role played by Africans resisting in, in, in burning the Capitol. And then uh, Nat Turner's rebellion in 1831. Because, you know, that, that's been raised after January 6th of this year. Oh, well, the Capitol was stormed in 1812, you know, and mm-hmm. that was a really 
really important thing. And one thing about 18, the War of 1812 was the leadership of Tecumseh, who was the brilliant genius of indigenous um, leader, militarily and uh, politically, who was fighting for a confederation of all indigenous people and for actual land. And, you know, unfortunately, he aligned himself with the British. And he, of course, they're colonizers of, you know, the first cut. And it was, you know, he was, he was killed in that, but he was, he was an incredible leader. I do want to tell his story, at, you know, at some time on this, on this series. So, you know, just the, the brilliance and the, the resistance and the endless fight of, of African, indigenous and colonized people to be free, to control their lives. And that is the struggle that is still going on today. And this is what, you know, in the Uhuru movement, the African People's Socialist Party is fighting unabashedly for power, for return of resources, not against racism. What, you know, the, the chairman calls that, um, you know, a self-defeating waste of time. And we can, we can see that in, um, you know, in just what we've talked about. Why would the question be to fight against racism when the fight must be for power? And that's what the Uhuru movement is about. Mm. And I yeah, am that's... in genuine solidarity with that. And I believe that reparations are due. And that's, that's how we you know, make our self-criticism to African people and how we join the people on the planet Earth instead of being the U.S. government's, uh, uh, you know, military force, whether inside this country or someplace else. Wow. And and what, what better response than reparations to what we're seeing right mm-hmm. now with uh, the, the horror, the humiliation of the murder of, of George Floyd, of, of Adam Toledo, and and yes. Durante Wright. I mean, when when you see this this trial unfolding, where you, you they're they're trying to convince you, if, if not that somehow it was justified that George Floyd brought his horrific murder on himself, that's one colonial lie. But another colonial lie is like you're saying that it's an aberration that what you're looking at in the murder of George Floyd is somehow not characteristic of policing in the U.S. and and the wider white world that uh, this is one bad apple when the reality is that that kind of torture is is that kind of murder and street level execution is exactly what colonialism is and always has been about. Even the New York times did an article a day or so ago saying that three people a day have been killed by the police since the beginning of the trial of Chauvin's trial. And (laughs) You know, and the majority of them are African or or Mexican or indigenous. So you know, they're just showing that. What would that be if not colonialism? Yeah, yeah. It's it's time that that we took an honest look at this that leads us to the, the revolutionary conclusion that that this has to end and and reparations is how we can step up and end it as white people. Because the, the, the other solutions are like trying to uh, dress up Thomas Jefferson 
as a freedom fighter, right? It's just, it, it becomes uh, a, a, a sick, obscene kind of parody of freedom rather than, than, than anything actually in, in the interests of liberty. So I, I really appreciate your overview, uh, Penny. And I, I think that this is a, a topic we should continue to come back to because it goes so very deep to, uh, you know, white identity, to, to the notion of, of what we think we are. Mm-hmm. Um, that that the American Revolution was was a fight for liberty against tyranny, and I think that um, it's it's so important to to rip these these lies up with the truth, even even when it's difficult, because it allows us to see real heroes, um, the, the the real freedom fighters like Tecumseh, like uh, Nat Turner, like Harriet Tubman, like Malcolm X. There are so many of them, and what's wrong with having a notion of freedom? that is based on, on a real fight for liberation. That's the kind of struggle I want to be associated with. Uhuru. Uhuru. Well, I think we can officially call this lie that uh, the American Revolution was a fight for liberty against tyranny shattered once and for all. Uhuru. You're listening to Reparations in Action. This has been an episode of Reparations in Action, the White Lies Shattered series, a biased podcast of white solidarity with black power. My name is Jamie Simpson. This episode was engineered by Marcel Marius, who also composed our theme music. The show is researched and produced by Penny Hess, Jesse Neville, and Lisa Watson from the Black Power 96.3 FM studio in St. Petersburg, Florida. A shout out to Akile Anayi and DJ Eddie Maltzby, as well as the entire Reparations in Action team, Sandra Forrest, Johan Bedingfield, Amanda Carlozzi, Kyle Weiss, Marissa Ricchetti, Ali Aiello, Alana Woods, Declan Keller, Hallie Murray, and Sarah Ritterspock. If you liked what you heard today, you can go to Apple Podcasts and rate this podcast. If you have questions, comments, suggestions, please email them to us at ria at blackpower96.org. Special thanks to the African People's Socialist Party's Chairman Omali Yeshitela, without whose leadership and theory of African internationalism, none of the understandings presented on reparations in action would be possible. Thank you for tuning in. We'll see you next week. <laughs>